Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Thank you for standing by. This is the conference operator. Welcome to the TC Energy 2020 fourth quarter results conference call. As a reminder, all participants are in listen-only mode and the conference is being recorded. After the presentation, there will be an opportunity to ask questions. To join the question queue, you may press star then 1 on your telephone keypad. Should you need assistance during the conference call, you may signal an operator by pressing star and 0. I would now like to turn the conference over to David Moneta, Vice President, Investor Relations. Please go ahead. Thanks very much, and good afternoon, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to TC Energy's 2020 fourth quarter conference call. Joining me today are Francois Poirier, President and Chief Executive Officer, Don Marchand, Executive Vice President of Strategy and Corporate Development, and our Chief Financial Officer, Tracy Robinson, President, Natural, Canadian Natural Gas Pipelines and Coastal Gas Link, Stan Chapman, President, U.S. and Mexico Natural Gas Pipelines, Bevan Wurspa, President, Liquids Pipelines, Corey Hessen, President, Power and Storage, and Glenn Manuz, Vice President and Controller. Francois and Don will begin today with some opening comments on our financial results and certain other company developments. A copy of the slide presentation that will accompany their remarks is available on our website. It can be found in the Investor section under the heading Events and Presentations. Following their prepared remarks, we will take questions from the investment community. If you are a member of the media, please contact Jamie Harding following this call, and she'd be happy to address your questions. In order to provide everyone from the investment community with an equal opportunity to participate, we ask that you limit yourself to two questions. If you have additional questions, please re-enter the queue. Also, we ask that you focus your questions on our industry, our corporate strategy, recent developments, and key elements of our financial performance. If you have detailed questions relating to some of our smaller operations or your detailed financial models, Hunter and I would be pleased to discuss them with you following the call. Before Francois begins, I'd like to remind you that our remarks today will include forward-looking statements that are subject to important risks and uncertainties. For more information on these risks and uncertainties, please see the reports filed by TC Energy with Canadian Securities Regulators and with the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission. And finally, during this presentation, we'll refer to measures such as comparable earnings, comparable earnings per share, comparable EBITDA, and comparable funds generated from operations. These comparable measures are considered to be non-GAAP measures, and as a result, they may not be comparable to similar measures presented by other entities. These measures are used to provide you with additional information on TC Energy's operating performance, liquidity, and its ability to generate funds to finance its operations. With that, I'll turn the call over to Francois. Thanks, David, and good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for joining us this afternoon. While 2020 presented some of the greatest global challenges in recent history, we quietly and reliably continue to deliver the energy millions of people rely on every day. Notably, the services we provide in Canada, the United States, and Mexico were deemed essential, given the important role our infrastructure plays in the functioning of the North American economy 
and the well-being of people across the continent. We take that responsibility seriously. And as always, we conducted our business in a safe and reliable manner, employing thousands of workers and supporting communities wherever we operate. And we delivered strong financial results for our shareholders. As you're accustomed with our risk preferences, approximately 95% of our comparable EBITDA comes from regulated and or long-term contracted assets, largely insulating us from the short-term volatility associated with the volume throughput and commodity price fluctuations. As a result, our $100 billion portfolio of high-quality, long-life energy infrastructure assets produced record results again in 2020, highlighting the resiliency of our assets and our utility-like business model. At the same time, we continue to advance a capital program that will help power the North American economy for decades to come. More specifically, we placed $5.9 billion of growth projects into service in 2020 and advanced another $20 billion of secured capital projects, and that's excluding Keystone XL. In addition, we continue to progress more than $8 billion of projects under development as well as numerous other opportunities. Looking forward, we expect our solid operating and financial performance to continue with ongoing growth in EBITDA. We also expect comparable earnings from common shares in 2021 will be generally consistent with the record results we produced in 2020. Finally, we know our ongoing success will depend on our ability to balance profitability with safety, environmental, and social responsibility. Society expects its energy to be delivered with care for people and our planet. And we also demand this of ourselves. We have a 70-year track record of safe and reliable operations, but we recognize we can always do better. And so as a result, we are focused on continuous improvement, including potential paths to reducing our GHG emissions and understanding shifting long-term fundamentals to ensure our business remains sustainable and resilient in an ever-evolving energy landscape. Now, with that as an overview, I'll expand on some recent developments, beginning with a brief review of our 2020 results. Excluding certain specific items, comparable earnings reached a record $3.9 billion, or $4.20 per common share in 2020, compared to $3.9 billion, or $4.14 in 2019, an increase of 1.5% on a per share basis. Comparable EBITDA of $9.4 billion was similar to last year, while comparable funds generated from operations also hit a record high of $7.4 billion, which is a 4% increase over 2019. Each of these amounts reflect the solid performance of our legacy assets as well as contributions from the $5.9 billion of new assets we placed into service during the year. Based on the strength of our financial performance and our promising outlook for the future, TC Energy's Board of Directors declared a first quarter 2021 dividend of $0.87 cents per common share, which is the equivalent of $3.48 per share on an annual basis. This represents a 7.4% increase over the amount declared in 2020 
and is the 21st consecutive year that our board has raised the dividend. Next, a few comments on our five operating businesses. First, in Canadian natural gas pipelines, customer demand for our services remained strong in 2020. And this manifested itself in the volumes transported across our network with the NGTL system field receipts averaging 12.1 BCF per day and Canadian mainline deliveries averaging 4.5 BCF per day. Both amounts were similar to the volumes we transported in 2019. At the same time, we placed $3.4 billion of NGTL system growth projects into service. We invested approximately $600 million in maintenance capital on our Canadian assets, which also forms part of rate base, and we received final approval for NGTL's 2021 expansion program. As a result, today we're advancing $6.7 billion of commercially secured projects on NGTL that will provide an incremental 3.2 BCF a day of capacity for our customers between now and 2024. Finally, in Canadian natural gas pipelines, we also continue to advance the 2.1 BCF per day coastal gas link project that will connect WCSB natural gas reserves to the LNG Canada export facility in Kitimat, BC. Due to COVID-19, in late December, the BC Provincial Health Officer issued an order restricting the number of workers on industrial project sites in the Northern Health Authority region of British Columbia. We're working with the provincial health authorities to safely resume construction activities in accordance with that order. We are also working with LNG Canada on establishing a revised project plan for coastal gas link. We expect that project costs will increase and the schedule will be delayed due to scope increases, permit delays, and the impacts of COVID-19, including the provincial health order. Coastal GasLink will continue to mitigate these impacts to the extent possible, and these incremental costs will be included in final pipeline tolls subject to certain conditions. Turning now to our U.S. natural gas pipelines business, where our broad network moved record volumes, averaging approximately 25 BCF per day in 2020, an increase of 1% over 2019 deliveries. Now, during the polar vortex that covered most of the U.S. over the past week, we experienced unprecedented sustained demand for our pipeline capacity as we set a record for coincidental three-day peak deliveries of over 101 BCF from February 14th to the 16th, besting our prior mark set in January of 2019 by about 2.5 BCF per day. And I'd like to extend a big shout out to our employees who've been managing trying personal circumstances, yet continue to ensure that we deliver the energy people need every day. Thank you. Over the past year, we also placed US 1.9 billion of projects in service, including the completion of the Modernization 2 program on our Columbia gas transmission system while adding nearly US $1 billion of growth projects to our backlog. Each of those projects is underpinned by long-term contracts, and they are great examples of the in-corridor expansions that will allow us to meet growing demand while also reducing our emissions. 
Also in U.S. pipelines, in late July, our Columbia gas transmission system filed a Section 4 rate case with FERC. The rate case is progressing as expected, while we continue to pursue a collaborative process to find a mutually beneficial outcome with our customers through settlement negotiations. Finally, in U.S. natural gas pipelines, in late 2020, we entered into a definitive agreement and plan of merger to acquire all of the outstanding common units of TC Pipelines LP not beneficially owned by us or our affiliates in exchange for TC Energy common shares. A vote on the plan of merger by unit holders is scheduled for February 26th. The transaction is expected to close in late first quarter. Approval by the holders of a majority of outstanding common units of TCP is the remaining significant closing condition. Turning now to our Mexican natural gas pipelines, where our five operating pipelines moved approximately 1.8 BCF per day during 2020. In addition, we advanced the Villa de Reyes project, although a phased-in service of the pipeline has been delayed due to COVID-19. Subject to the timely reopening of government agencies, we now expect to complete construction during 2021. Finally, in Mexico, we completed a project to allow bi-directional flows on our Guadalajara pipeline. It's a good example of our ongoing collaboration with the CFE on a project that provides access to either LNG imports from the Manzanillo terminus or access to low-cost continental natural gas supply at the Guadalajara terminus for delivery to regional markets. Turning now to our liquids pipelines, business which generated solid results despite extraordinary volatility in global crude oil markets. While the volatility had a significant impact on our market link and liquid marketing business, Keystone continued to produce strong results. The system moved an average of 555,000 barrels per day last year, underscoring its role as an important conduit between abundant natural gas, uh, North American reserves and key markets. Also, in liquids pipelines, on January 20th, the U.S. President revoked the existing presidential permit for the Keystone Excel pipeline. As a result of this disappointing decision, we suspended the advancement of the project and ceased capitalizing costs, including interest during construction, while we assess our options, along with our partners and other stakeholders. We wish to thank our customers, American and Canadian workers, our partners, the Government of Alberta and Natural Law Energy, labor organizations, industry, the Government of Canada, and countless other supporters of this project over the past decade. Turning to our power and storage business, where Bruce Power once again produced solid results as its strong operating performance continued. Last January, work commenced on the Unit 6 Major Component Replacement, or MCR, program when we took the unit offline. We expect to invest approximately $2.6 billion in the program, with Unit 6 expected to return to service in 2023. While COVID-19 has pre presented some challenges, good progress is being made on the project, achieving a major milestone on October 1st with the commencement of the Fuel Channel and Feeder Replacement Program. We also continue to advance work on the refurbishment of another five reactors 
as part of Bruce Power's long-term life extension program. Finally, in Power, we continue to engage various stakeholders in an effort to advance a large pumped storage opportunity in Ontario. The project is designed to store emission-free electricity and provide backstop to the intermittency associated with the energy provided by a renewable generation. In summary, today we're advancing $20 billion of secured projects that are expected to enter, enter service by 2024. All are underpinned by cost of service regulation or long-term contracts, giving us visibility to the earnings and cash flow they will generate. Approximately 4.2 billion of these projects are expected to be completed in 2021, including $1.7 billion of maintenance and modernization initiatives tied to our regulated pipelines. Looking forward, our goal is to continue to invest $5 to $6 billion annually to deliver on our long-term growth plans. As you can see on this slide, our starting point is our $20 billion secured capital program. Beyond that, we expect to continue to invest $1.5 to $2 billion annually in maintenance and modernization programs across our extensive pipeline network, approximately 85% of which is recoverable through our rate-regulated businesses. We're also developing a significant suite of future opportunities, including several projects that will allow us to deploy capital along our extensive pipeline corridors. And we see opportunities in renewables and the firming resources needed to manage their intermittency, electrifying our fleet, as well as emerging technologies such as hydrogen. In summary, I believe we will continue to be opportunity rich. And I believe that our challenge will be to allocate capital thoughtfully to those projects that are aligned with our capabilities, our risk preferences, and our return requirements while playing a role in the evolving energy landscape. Based on the continued strong performance of our base business, combined with our organic growth plans, we expect to continue to grow our dividend at an average annual rate of 5 to 7%. And I want to make it clear that there is no assumption of M&A embedded in our growth rates, nor is M&A a current area of focus for us. As always, the growth in dividends is expected to be supported by sustainable growth in earnings and cash flow per share and strong coverage ratios. In closing, I'd like to leave you with the following key messages. Looking forward, I expect our assets will continue to provide an essential service to the functioning of the North American economy, and demand for our services will remain strong for decades to come. We have five significant platforms for growth, our Canadian, U.S., and Mexico natural gas pipelines, our liquids pipelines, and our power and storage business. As we advance our $20 billion of secured capital projects and various other organic growth opportunities, we expect to build on our long-term track record of growing earnings, cash flows, and dividends per share. We will also continue to focus on safety, sustainability, working according to our values, and responding quickly to market signals and signposts to ensure we remain industry-leading and resilient as we grow shareholder value. I'll now turn the call over to Don, who will provide more details on our financial results and outlook. Don? Thanks, Francois, and good afternoon, everyone. 
As outlined in our results issued earlier today, net income attributable to common shares was $1.1 billion, or $1.20 per share in the fourth quarter of 2020, compared to $1.1 billion, or $1.18 per share for the same period in 2019. Fourth quarter 2020 included an income tax valuation allowance release of $18 million related to reassessment of our ability to utilize certain prior year's U.S. tax losses, an additional $18 million income tax recovery related to state income taxes on the sale of Columbia Midstream assets in 2019, and an incremental after-tax loss of $81 million to settle remaining post-closing obligations on the sale of the Ontario natural gas-fired power plants in April 2020. Fourth quarter 2019 results also included several specific items as outlined on the slide and discussed in the fourth quarter 2020 financial highlights release. All of these specific items, as well as unrealized gains and losses from changes in risk management activities, are excluded from comparable earnings, which reached $1.1 billion in fourth quarter 2020, or $1.15 per share, $110 million, or 12 cents higher than last year. Turning to our business segment results on slide 18, in the fourth quarter, comparable EBITDA from our five operating segments was approximately $2.3 billion, consistent with 2019 results. Canadian Natural Gas Pipeline's comparable EBITDA of $682 million was $64 million higher than the same period last year due to the net effect of increased rate base earnings, flow-through depreciation, and flow-through financial charges on the NGTL system as our investment program advanced and additional facilities were placed in service. Coastal gas link development fee revenue recognized in 2020 and lower flow-through income taxes on the NGTL system and the Canadian mainline. I would note that for Canadian natural gas pipelines, changes in depreciation, financial charges, and income taxes impact comparably the DUB, but do not have a significant effect on net income as they are almost entirely recovered in revenues on a flow-through basis. Net income for the NGTL system increased $17 million compared to fourth quarter 2019, mainly due to a higher average investment base from continued system expansions. Net income for the Canadian mainline decreased $2 million year over year. U.S. natural gas pipelines comparable EBITDA of $706 million U.S. or $919 million Canadian in the quarter rose by $58 million U.S. or $64 million Canadian compared to the same period in 2019. The increase was mainly due to strong operating cost management across a number of our pipelines. Mexico natural gas pipelines comparable EBITDA of $128 million U.S. or $166 million Canadian was consistent with results in fourth quarter 2019. Liquids Pipeline's comparable EBITDA declined by $64 million to $408 million in fourth quarter 2020, primarily due to lower contributions from liquids marketing activities, largely from reduced margins. Power and Storage comparable EBITDA fell by $49 million year over year to $161 million, primarily due to the net effect of the removal from service of Bruce Power Unit 6 in January 2020 for its MCR program and lower Canadian power earnings largely as a result of the sale of our Ontario natural gas fire uh, power plants in April 2020, partially offset by fewer plant outage days on the remaining Bruce units and improved results from our Alberta cogeneration plants. For all our businesses with U.S. dollar-denominated income, including U.S. natural gas pipelines, Mexico natural gas pipelines, and parts of liquids pipelines, EBITDA was translated into Canadian dollars using an exchange rate of 1.30, in fourth quarter 2020 compared to a rate of 132 for the same period in 2019. 
As a reminder, our U.S. dollar-denominated revenue streams are, in part, naturally hedged by interest on U.S. dollar-denominated debt. We then actively manage the residual exposure on a rolling two-year forward basis with realized gains and losses on this program reflected in comparable interest income and other in the corporate segment. Now turning to the other income statement items on slide 19. Appreciation and amortization of $652 million, increased $27 million versus fourth quarter 2019, reflecting new assets placed in service in Canadian natural gas pipelines, which amounts are fully recoverable in tolls on a flow-through basis, partially offset by lower depreciation in power and storage, mainly due to a 2019 reassessment of the useful life of certain components at our Alberta cogeneration plants. Interest expense of $539 million for fourth quarter 2020 was $56 million lower year-over-year, primarily due to the net effect of higher capitalized interest related to Keystone XL, lower capitalized interest due to the completion of Napanee in first quarter 2020, and the application of equity accounting to Costa GasLink upon the sale of a 65% interest in the project in May 2020, lower interest rates on short-term borrowings, and the foreign exchange impact from a weaker U.S. dollar on translation of U.S. dollar-denominated interest. AFEDC decreased $22 million to $95 million for the three months ended December 31, 2020, compared to the same period in 2019, primarily due to NGTL system expansion projects placed in service and the suspension of reporting, recording AFEDC on TULA effective January 1, 2020, due to ongoing construction delays. This was partially offset by continued investment in our growth projects on Columbia Gas. Comparable interest income and other was $86 million in the fourth quarter, up from $77 million for the same period in 2019, primarily due to realized gains in 2020 compared to realized losses in 2019 on derivatives used to manage our net exposure to foreign exchange rate fluctuations on U.S. dollar-denominated in income. This was partially offset by lower interest income in 2020 related to the peso-denominated inter-affiliate loan receivable from the CERTA Texas joint venture due to lower interest rates and the foreign exchange impact of the weaker peso. A proportionate share of the offsetting interest expense on this loan is reflected in income from equity investments in our Mexico natural gas pipeline segment with no resulting impact on consolidated net income. Income tax expense included in comparable earnings was $134 million in fourth quarter 2020 compared to $211 million for the same period last year. The $77 million decrease was mainly on account of lower flow-through income taxes in Canadian rate-regulated pipelines and higher foreign tax rate differentials. Comparable net income attributable to non-controlling interest of $69 million in the fourth quarter decreased by $7 million relative to the same period last year. Non-controlling interest primarily captures public unit holder ownership in TC Pipelines LP and the Government of Alberta investment in Keystone XL. And finally, preferred share dividends were comparable to fourth quarter 2019. Now turning to slide 20. During the fourth quarter, we invested approximately $2.2 billion in our capital program, primarily on NGTL system expansions, various U.S. natural gas pipeline projects, and Keystone XL prior to suspending its advancement. Our investing activities were largely funded with comparable funds generated from operations of $2.1 billion and partner equity contributions to Keystone XL. For the full year, comparable funds generated reached a record $7.4 billion. Our balance sheet, liquidity, and financial flexibility are all in their historical position of strength. 
We exited 2020 with debt to EBITDA in line with the high fours, an FFO to debt of approximately 15% that we have targeted, and we are well positioned to fund our $20 billion secured capital program through our strong internally generated cash flow and debt capacity without increasing share count. As we have suspended the advancement of Keystone XL, we no longer expect to issue hybrid securities or common shares through our dividend reinvestment program for the purpose of funding the project. Finally, we extinguished U.S. $2 billion of 364-day committed bilateral credit facilities, which had been established in second quarter 2020 at the onset of the pandemic as they were no longer needed. Now turning to slide 21, this graphic highlights our forecasted sources and uses of funds for 2021 through 2023, which is similar to the slide we presented at Investor Day, but updated to remove Keystone XL going forward. Starting in the left column, the total funding requirement over the next three years is projected to be approximately $28 billion, comprised of dividends of $11 billion, capital expenditures including maintenance capital of $15 billion, and $2 billion attributed to the pending TC Pipeline's LP acquisition. The second column highlights expected internally generated cash flow of $21 billion, which leaves a residual need of approximately $7 billion in the far right column, of which approximately $2 billion is attributed to the Pipe LP share for unit exchange. The remaining $5 billion will be funded through a combination of incremental debt, commercial paper, and other, including capital recoveries. The program is consistent with our goal of maintaining debt to EBITDA in the high fours range and FFO to debt at 15%. Now turning to slide 22, next I'd like to spend a moment on our 2021 comparable earnings outlook. Additional information is contained in our 2020 annual management's discussion and analysis, which is being filed on CDAR today and will be available on our website. Overall, comparable earnings per share in 2021 are expected to be generally consistent with results achieved in 2020 due to the net impact of the following. Canadian natural gas pipelines earnings are anticipated to be higher, mainly due to continued growth in the NGTL system, higher incentive earnings in the Canadian mainline, and increased coastal gas link development fee revenue due to an expected rise in project activity. U.S. natural gas pipelines earnings are also expected to grow due to an increase in transportation rates on Columbia Gas, which is dependent on the outcome of the Section 4 rate case filed with FERC. In Mexico, we forecast earnings to be lower year-over-year due to fees recognized in 2020 associated with the completion of the Certain Texas Pipeline. In liquids, earnings are anticipated to be lower than 2020 due to continued challenging market conditions impacting uncontracted volumes on the Keystone Pipeline system and margins in the liquids marketing business. Comparable earnings for the power and storage segment are expected to decline primarily due to a lower contribution from Bruce Power as a result of greater planned outage days and higher operating costs, as well as the sale of our Ontario natural gas-fired power plants in 2020. Bruce Power availability excluding Unit 6 was 88% in 2020 and is expected to be in the mid-80% range in 2021. Other items impacting earnings include the suspension of AFUDC on Villa de Reyes, effective January 1st, 2021, given ongoing delays, and reduced capitalized interest due to the revocation of the Keystone XL presidential permit, which occurred on January 20th. With respect to income taxes, excluding Canadian rate-regulated pipelines, where income taxes are a flow-through item and can be quite variable, along with equity AFUDC income in U.S. natural gas pipelines, 
we expect our 2021 full-year effective tax rate to be in the mid to high teens. Finally, as part of the 2021 outlook, I would note that our exposure to interest rate, foreign exchange, and commodity price variability remains quite limited in our diversified portfolio, given approximately 95% of EBITDA coming from contract and regulated assets, various flow through and sharing mechanisms, as well as natural and active hedges in place. We do expect to record an impairment charge in 2021 related to the suspension of advancement of Keystone XL, and as previously noted, we have stopped recording IDC for the project effective January 20th. In terms of capital spending, we expect to invest approximately $7 billion in 2021 on growth projects, maintenance capital, and contributions to equity investments, with the majority attributable to NGTL system expansions, U.S. natural gas pipelines project, the Bruce Power Life Extension Program, and normal course maintenance capital of which approximately 85% is invested in regulated rate base or otherwise recoverable. We do not believe disruptions related to COVID-19 will be material to our overall 2021 capital program, but recognize that uncertainty exists in both the short and longer term. Lastly, turning to slide 23, closing, I offer the following comments. Our solid financial and operational results in the fourth quarter once again highlight our diversified low-risk business strategy and reflect the robust performance of both our blue chip legacy portfolio, along with the incremental contribution of equally high quality assets from our ongoing capital program. Today, we're advancing a $20 billion suite of secured projects and have five distinct platforms for future growth in Canadian, US and Mexico natural gas pipelines, liquids pipelines and power and storage. Our portfolio of critical energy infrastructure projects is poised to generate high-quality long-life earnings and cash flow for our shareholders, as well as offer further attractive and executable in-corridor opportunities. That is expected to support annual dividend growth of 5 to 7% in the future. Finally, we will continue to maintain financial strength and flexibility at all points of the economic cycle and as a proven shock absorber to unforeseen market events. That's the end of my prepared remarks. I'll now turn the call back over to David for the Q&A. Great. Thanks, Don. Uh, just a reminder, before I turn it back over to the conference coordinator for questions from the investment community, we ask that you limit yourself to two questions. If you have additional questions, uh, please re-enter the queue. With that, I'll turn it over to the conference coordinator. Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. To join the question queue, you may press star, then 1 on your telephone keypad. You will hear a tone acknowledging your request. If you are using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing any keys. To withdraw your question, please press star, then 2. We will pause for a moment as callers join the queue. Our first question comes from Robert Kwan of RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Good afternoon. Um, Recognizing you've got a lot of stakeholders, so you can't necessarily say something definitive on KXL, but it sounds like you're not expecting a path forward for the project, at least one that involves any material TC Energy shareholder capital. So if that's the case, can you just talk about how you view liquid pipelines in general within your overall asset mix, thinking about the lack of visibility for infrastructure-driven growth and, and especially what it does to your ESG profile? Robert, it's Francois. I'll get started on this and I'll ask Bevan to provide some additional color. Uh, you know, our starting point is that this is irreplaceable infrastructure. It's 
a very high quality cash flow stream underpinned by long-term contracts with creditworthy counterparties. And um, you know, any alternative has to compete um, with the growth and earnings and cash flow that, that this is going to generate. Um, and it can play a role in TC Energy's growth, irrespective of where we decide to allocate our, our capital going forward. Uh, we do see a tremendous amount of opportunities uh, in, um, and I'll ask Bevan to speak to uh, what we see on the liquid side, but in our natural gas and, and power and storage businesses, and um, you know that's going to be um, you know high quality, reliable cash flow that we can uh, allocate you know wherever we see the best uh, returns and how we want to manage the portfolio going forward. But Bevan, if, it, if I could ask you to comment on uh, growth prospects within the liquids business. Sure. Thank you, Francois. Um, Robert, Robert, to go after the question around the liquids uh, BU's uh, growth outlook, certainly we, our base assets uh, link a very strategic supply basin with the highest demand uh, utilization in the Gulf Coast refining markets and the Midwest refining markets, so a very strategic corridor. Um, that is irreplaceable. And so while we were developing uh, the Keystone Excel project, we were similarly in parallel advancing other opportunities to enhance our service offering for our customers, um, providing uh, different access points to delivery points uh, and looking at as the market fundamentals shift and uh, supply sources change, looking at where the uh, arbitrage is in the market and finding ways to leverage our existing assets to um, enhance our, our growth outlook. Um, maybe I'll take your, uh, you also mentioned, you know, our path forward, you know, just to address that. You know, this is a, a very complex process and, and while we evaluate our path forward, you know, we have begun to immediately wind down our construction activities in, in both Canada and the U.S. in a safe and responsible manner. And it, it's going to take some time to work with our partners and customers to determine what those exact next steps will look like. Uh, but we'll do so consistent with our, our values and doing, in doing the right thing. So hopefully that, that answers uh, both your two questions. That's great. Um, if I can just finish turning to, to M&A and appreciate the comments that it's not a focus nor needed to reach the 5 to 7% growth rate. But that being said, um, maybe this is for Francois just now that you're in the chair, can you outline your approach or framework for let's call it opportunistic M&A? Specifically, if you can comment on you know, the willingness to take leverage above your target over kind of a medium-term period uh, to execute that, you know, how you approach timing for, for EPS accretion and, and maybe just structurally um, your interest or um, willingness to acquire assets or platforms of scale where you might have a non-controlling or non-operating interest. Boy, there's lots in there to unpack, but I'll, uh, I'll do my best, uh, um, Robert. Um, you know, with respect to asset M&A, uh, I think as we've mentioned in the past, uh, we always look for high-quality assets at distressed points in the cycle uh, where we uh, were able to acquire assets, assets that uh, otherwise would not be available because of their quality because uh, the existing owners are, um, you know, in, uh, uh, in financial distress. Uh, we typically don't look for assets uh, that are of a lower quality and, and need um, 
need work uh, uh, and uh, uh, and deliver value from that perspective. So uh, we do have a list of assets that uh, we've uh, we would covet over time. I would characterize them as um, you know enhancements and um, you know um, uh, uh, directly connected to our existing footprint. And uh, you know uh, to uh, to this point, we have not seen any of those assets uh, become available, although we have had conversations with various parties. In terms of longer-term M&A, uh, you know, our value proposition from my perspective is to deliver, um, you know, reasonable amount of growth uh, in, uh, in dividends uh, with a low-risk uh, business risk profile underpinned by growth in underlying earnings and cash flow. Um, so, as we think about M&A, whether it's near-term, medium-term, or long-term, um, the value proposition is that whatever assets we acquire have to actually meet that requirement. Um, we, um, we don't uh, feel that um, our currency at the moment, uh, given where we're trading in relative to our intrinsic value, lends itself to us doing uh, anything dramatic. Um, uh, it's very difficult when you're trading at a discount to intrinsic value to generate revenue and cost synergies that, that close those gaps. So we don't really think of accretion from a, uh, a, a financial accounting standpoint. We think of accretion from an intrinsic value standpoint. And so we're inclined to be patient, which is why uh, I mentioned that we're going to be focusing on our own operational excellence, um, making sure our assets are, are delivering the you know, optimal amount of cash flow uh, and, and performing well from that perspective, and then looking to organic growth opportunities from our existing corridors um, and, and, and those types of business opportunities. So um, from a balance sheet standpoint, uh, you know, in order to be opportunistic, you have to be able to maintain a strong balance sheet and have some dry powder. Uh, and so, you know, any transaction that would see us uh, taking on even temporarily, significant amount of incremental leverage above our targeted levels is not something that we're really contemplating at this point. And just on non-controlling and non-operating interests, that hasn't oh. typically been a TC Energy thing, but um, your approach to something like that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, uh, not likely. Um, you know, we we enjoy um, you know uh, you know having strategic control and operations of most, if not all, of the assets that uh, uh, we have an ownership interest in. Uh, you can see with the transaction that we've uh, uh, initiated to uh, buy in um, uh, the LP, uh, that's a situation where we are the operator, we're the general partner, we're very familiar with the assets and so comfortable with um, uh, properly assessing risk uh, and managing risk. In a situation where you're, you're not necessarily the operator, it's a you know a, a different proposition, and I, I'm not saying we, we would never contemplate something like that, but it's as you pointed out, it's not something that we've typically done, and uh, that would not be our first approach. Perfect. Thank you very much. Thanks, Robert. Our next question comes from Ben Tam of BMO. Please go ahead. Okay. Thanks. Uh, good morning. Uh, uh, sorry. Good afternoon. Uh, I was wondering the in terms of your the business mix now, you've got KXL uh, off, off the roster. 
and, and so you, you look at your percentage of, of gas pipelines and and the rest of your business, you're you're probably a bit more tilted to gas than, than oil now. Okay, so is, is there a strategic uh, long-term focus for you to to look more towards diversifying a business mix more, maybe balancing out over time? I think. Uh, uh, you know, the way we have thought about our portfolio composition, Ben, uh, over the last uh, number of years is that we work hard to uh, originate opportunities to allocate capital in a manner that's consistent with our risk preferences uh, and that earn a reasonable rate of return, um, you know, given the risk profile of, of the opportunity. And to some extent, um, you know, the portfolio composition has emanated from the opportunities that we've brought forward. We do think that having uh, more diverse, diversity going forward would be to our benefit. Our, our, you know, our, our goal is to be um, uh, able to prosper irrespective of how the energy mix transitions over time. So as we look at opportunities to uh, allocate our capital going forward, uh, we do see significant opportunity for us to invest capital in our existing fairways in our natural gas business. And as we've talked about, uh, either through firming resources or uh, building renewables to meet our own electricity consumption uh, from our power and storage business, we see some really interesting growth opportunities there as well. And uh, uh, I think uh, uh, also as we work towards our uh, GHG emission reduction strategies, we do see an interesting potential for us to be electrifying some of our own footprint, um, for example, by replacing uh, natural gas turbines with electric motors at some of our compressor stations along our natural gas pipeline um, uh, corridors. So I think you can see the migration of our capital allocation moving to a bit more diversity uh, and uh, perhaps more towards uh, power and storage than has been uh, the trajectory over the last few years as we've been monetizing some of those assets to fund our growth program um, along the, the uh, uh, Columbia system and, and uh, in the Canada gas system as well. And maybe to, to switch to, to portfolio management, I know probably lots of a need for that now. Um, you're still having it in, in your slides as, as usual. You've, you've been able to harvest from that the last couple of years, whether it's oil pipelines or renewables. And, and you know, to the extent you add more growth going forward, which seems to be the case, I mean, is there, do you see any sort of arbitrage opportunities in your portfolio now between lower cost of capital players and and your public uh, equity valuation? There could be in some circumstances. I think, you know, from a capital allocation standpoint, you know, our job is to maximize the spread between the return we earn on an investment and the underlying cost of capital to fund that investment. So we have the traditional public sources uh, through debt and equity capital markets, but we also have um, internal equity that can generate it through monetizing individual assets. and. Uh, we, we keep a pretty close um, pulse on um, private market valuations for assets, and it, it is something that we contemplate as we look to uh, raise capital um, to fund our growth program, and it's something that uh, we would look to in the future. I can tell you uh, that uh, um, with uh, the uh, uh, growth uh, and capital program that Don walked you through uh, um, uh, just earlier in the prepared remarks, we're confident in our ability to fund our uh, existing program through internally generated funds and uh, don't expect to have the need to raise uh, our share count in any way. So um, uh, 
from my perspective, I would view the need to raise external capital uh, beyond our internally generated funds as being a, a very good problem to have because it means that you've got an opportunity that's sort of accretive to your, your base case. But right now, uh, the base case does not contemplate any monetization of our existing assets. Yeah, Ben, it's Don. I'll, I'll just echo Francois' comments and just uh, note we, our credit metrics are in line. We're largely self-funded uh, at this point. Uh, anytime we, we, have, we have to look at issuing shares, we'll look at selling things, um, and everything is looked through the lens of per-share metrics. Uh, but we truly are into the core assets now, um, and, and with the portfolio effect of, uh, of what you see on a map and, and hiving off um, arms and legs of that is a more difficult uh, proposition, but uh, we feel we're in the sweet spot right now. Um, we look at simplicity of structure, we look at the optionality embedded in these assets and also the tax consequences of, of, uh, of monetizing anything, but uh, you know, at this point in time, there's, uh, there's no pressing need to sell anything, and uh, we're, we're pretty enamored with, uh, with our portfolio at this stage. Okay, that's great. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Our next question comes from Jeremy Tonnet of J.P. Morgan. Please go ahead. Hi, good afternoon. Hi, Jeremy. I just had a, a, a couple high-level questions here. And, you know, I was just thinking with energy transition, a larger focus in the stock market these days, I was just wondering if your thought process has evolved with, from investor, I guess, conversations on capital stock rotation overall, just uh, uh, the pace of that. And at a high level, how do you see the TRP or portfolio advancing over time? Uh, I recognize you kind of touched on that in some of the questions before, but just, you know, thinking about energy transition and capital stock rotation. I think, you know, as you, as we discussed in our, uh, on our investor day in November, and you look at some of the tenets or fundamental beliefs that sort of drive our views on asset allocation and portfolio composition, you know, we believe that uh, um, energy demand globally will continue to grow. I think the demographics are just such that that's going to be the case. We also believe that natural gas will continue to gain market share um, modestly on a percentage basis, but in absolute terms on an en energy equivalent, it will be significant growth. So we do see an opportunity for us to allocate incremental capital into our natural gas businesses. The two basins we serve the Western Canadian Sedimentary Basin and the Appalachian Basin are extremely competitive and resilient. And as a matter of fact, we expect that over time they will gain market share. And so we feel like we're serving the right basins. Um, with respect to um, other parts of our portfolio, the other area of interesting growth for us will be in our power and storage business. And um, as I mentioned, uh, we see an opportunity to um, electrify our, our own consumption. Uh, our consumption on base Keystone is about 800 megawatts, and uh, on the natural, natural gas pipeline side of our system, about 10% of our um, compressor stations in Canada are driven by electric motors, uh, and uh, about 5% of those in the United States. So we do see an opportunity to allocate more capital in our pipeline businesses to electrify uh, those compressor stations, and then beyond that, once the electricity demand has been created, um, build the renewable generation uh, uh, that will be required to actually meet that consumption. So, uh, you know, over and above that, as we think about, uh, you know, other growth opportunities, we look at 
uh, our solar uh, and battery projects we have in development in Alberta. Uh, we just announced, uh, you know, Siemens in conjunction with Siemens, a new waste heat technology that will generate emission-free power um, from waste heat at our compressor sites. Uh, that's at a pilot inst installation in Alberta, but we see about 300 megawatts of potential for that across our system. So um, we're very confident in our ability to meet our internal goal of finding five to six billion dollars a year of opportunity to allocate our capital. And I think, as you mentioned, uh, Jeremy, or intimated, you know that that allocation is likely to shift more towards the theme of our investments to um, electrify our asset base, reduce our emissions, and also uh, the uh, you know reflecting the increased percentage of renewable generation uh, in the generation mix overall. Understood. Yeah, it sure seems the events in Texas would highlight the value of natural gas there. So, so understood on that point. And then maybe just kind of pivoting to, to a separate question here, and Don, I've asked this before, but just curious for your thoughts on, you know, what's the right level of payout ratio uh, for TRP here? If, if you see, if your belief is that TRP is trading below intrinsic value, might it make sense to lower the, the payout ratio um, a little bit to enable more buyback to take advantage of that situation. If you see that, I see that you, the 2021 growth ticked down a little bit uh, there. So just wondering your, your current thoughts on that. Yeah, thanks for the question, Jeremy. Um, it's, we, um, it's a balancing act all the time, but we, we have a multi-decade model that, that has delivered pretty significant TSR over time. Um, we 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 think in the longer term, in terms of the, the capital allocation uh, model that we have, uh, never flavor the day, but I'd say we're, we're, we're not also not tone deaf as to what's going on out there. The building blocks, you know, we start, start looking at the base businesses, anything fundamentally changed, and we're pretty comfortable um, that the base business is resilient, and we scenario and stress tested that ad nauseum. So, um, we think the cash flow will be there as we look out a decade dec in the coming decades here. So that looking at the dividend, is it affordable and is it valued? Um, you know, when we look at the interest rate backdrop right now, uh, we would think that uh, over time the, um, the market will, will come back and appreciate the yield that is associated with, uh, with, our, with our shares right now. Um, the opportunity set to reinvest cash flow is, is, is as robust as we've seen it for, you know, for, for a decade plus here. So, uh, as, as Francois alluded to, the um, so nothing has fundamentally changed here. Um, so we step back and we try not to make any any decisions on, on a short term basis here uh, on a knee jerk basis, but. Um, we look at our payout ratios. They're largely in line on a comparable EPS basis. We've historically targeted 80 to 90 percent. Um, we're, we're certainly well within those parameters, which equates to about 40 percent of cash flow. So, um, as we guide to five to seven percent dividend growth, we we um, we see the payout staying within those um, those metrics going forward. Um, you look at the share price from time to time. Uh, we look at it every day, every every hour. 
Um, it can be frustrating at times, but we've seen this movie before. And if we continue to deliver on this model, um, you know, we, we think that the valuation will, uh, will ultimately reflect that. So um, very long-winded way of saying uh, nothing has fundamentally changed in terms of base business, the opportunity set, uh, and I, I'm, I'm a bit strained to figure out why uh, you know, a 6% yield right now when, when interest rates are 1% or lower uh, is not better reflected in the share price. But again, we've been through these air pockets before, and uh, if they persist for a very long time, we'll revisit it. Um, but fundamentally, all the building blocks we've historically seen are in place. Understood. I'll stop there. Thank you for the thought. Thanks, Jeremy. Our next question comes from Rob Hope of Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Uh, good afternoon. Um, I want to follow up on some prior comments on the on the opportunities for growth in this environment. You know, uh, the potential loss of Keystone XL is a bit of a dent in the middle part of the decade's growth uh, uh, growth outlook. How do you think about backfilling your growth um, um, to offset this, or is that even required just given the fact that you do have about $15 million of backlog right now, uh, which is you know, at the lower end of your five to six per year? I think the way we look at it, Rob, uh, you know, is what's our degree of confidence in, in being able to you know, build up to that five to six every year? And at, right out of the gate, we have a billion and a half to two billion dollars a year of maintenance capital that's required. You know, 85 to 90 percent of that goes into rate base. Um, uh, and given the very high utilization rate on our pipelines, we're expecting that that level of capital spend will be required going forward. And over and above that, you look at the um, uh, Bruce Power. Uh, MCR program, uh, I think as we included in some of our slides, we are, um, you know, approaching a decision on MCR Unit 3 in the fourth quarter of this year. Um, I think uh, in our MDNA we have uh, from 2024 through 2031, the end of the program, in 2018 dollars, it's about $6 billion of capital spend. Uh, in actual dollars, let's call that a billion dollars a year. So that gets you to pretty close to three billion right there, and then looking at in corridor expansions in our U.S. and Canadian natural gas pipeline businesses, uh, each of uh, our Canadian and U.S. businesses delivered about a billion dollars of new growth projects in 2020. And as we look at uh, the next few years in each of those businesses, we think that that is a good and reasonable run rate. Uh, so that gets you to close to five right there, and that's before we start thinking about um, uh, opportunities on the, on the power side to invest capital in meeting our own consumption, and it's even before looking at other things like electrifying our own load and other capital investment opportunities that come from uh, reducing our emissions. So we actually see ourselves as opportunity rich. And if we want to live within our means, um, we're actually going to have to make some choices between all of the different items I just laid out for you uh, in terms of priorities, not only thinking about hurdle rates and you know, risk return and the underlying um, commercial underpinnings, but also what we want the portfolio to look like over time. All right, thanks for that. And then you know, the follow-up was going to be on hurdle rates. So, you know, how do you think about kind of your, your hurdle rates? Uh, you know, does Keystone push the liquids hurdle rate up? You know, you have 
you know, a robust ROE ask in the uh, Columbia rate filing, and on the other side, you know, are hurdle rates coming down on the on the power side? Don, do you want to take that one? Yeah, yeah, I'll start. Um, looking at it holistically, um, you know, we're we're not going to. Our hurdle rates have not really budged much over the years, um, and we're not going to chase. Uh, projects down below uh, what we feel is an acceptable return. So, you know, we see some aspects of, say, the renewable space right now that, well, we would like to invest capital in that in that business, uh, in that space. Um, it just doesn't meet our return hurdles. Uh, in terms of the liquid side, um, you know, Bevan's outlined some of the opportunities here. There's a lot of bolt-on stuff that, that you know, could be reasonably high return low execution risk stuff, the, uh, the challenge we have is, is finding uh, larger scale liquids opportunities that meet our risk preferences. Um, are they out there and how significant are they? But generally, um, what, we've, what we've pointed to is um, unlevered after-tax IRR is kind of in that mid to high single digit range um, with variability for political risk in places like Mexico, uh, unique nature of, uh, of nuclear refurbishment and the like, but generally the pipeline space you end up in that seven to eight percent range, and uh, you know we still see a lot of opportunity coming, certainly on the gas side, and we expect them will bring um, some bolt-on stuff on the liquid side in that range, just maybe not the you know, multi-billion-dollar stuff. Thank you. Our next question comes from Linda Ezergalis of TD Securities. Please go ahead. Thank you. Congratulations for a uh, resilient and uh, strong year. Certainly a different year than we all expected. I'm, I'm wondering if you can help us understand, uh, recognizing that this is another dynamic situation, uh, the recent cold weather and polar vortex um, in Texas and, and the southern U.S., can you talk about what sort of impact it's having on your operations and how might we think of any financial impact, uh, if any, recognizing that there's a, a force majeure clauses that we might not be available? And I guess the, the second part of my question is, you know, lessons learned, uh, you know, at some point, is it just going to be business as usual after you regroup and recover? Or might you rethink uh, con the value of connectivity? Maybe there's some um, uh, possibility of storm hardening, becoming even more resilient, and making those investments uh, that customers might ask for. Or um, maybe might you rethink also uh, the extent and pace of electrifying the pipe net pipeline network if uh, uh, electric power might not be um, um, you know, uh, available uh, as a backup if uh, the solar um, or any other investments you make um, uh, can't provide uh, power to your compressors. So, Linda, this is Stan. I could uh, address the first part of your question, and then I'll invite my colleagues to, to jump in at the at the rest. Uh, both of our pipelines and our people performed extraordinarily well uh, during the, I guess, what I would call the ongoing cold snap that really ripped across much of the U.S. Um, and yet again, just shows the the really valuable role that we play in providing energy to, to millions of individuals and, and businesses uh, when it's needed most. Uh, yet again, we saw record throughput levels uh, across our 13 pipeline network. 
Uh, Francois already mentioned that we had a coincidental three-day peak between February 14, 15, and 16, where we delivered over 101 BCF of gas. On February 15th, our Columbia Gulf Pipeline set a new peak day delivery record, sending out over 3.2 BCF. And also on February 15th, across our combined 13 owned and operated pipelines, uh, we delivered uh, just over 34 BCF of gas, which was our second highest single peak day ever. So uh, this is a, a most impressive accomplishment from my perspective, and it doesn't happen by accident. And uh, I'd like to echo Francois's comments at the beginning of the call and recognize literally the, the thousands of employees across the U.S. from our field operations teams who were uh, the ones that braved these late-night call-outs and freezing temps to our, our gas control teams who, who optimized literally every single decatherm of capacity to ensure uh, not only that we were meeting our customer obligations, which we did, but also creating value for the company. And uh, lastly, our, our office workers, and especially those in Houston who worked uh, most of the past week without any electricity, heat, or even sometimes water in their homes. Uh, with respect to your, your comment around uh, electrification and does this impact in Texas make us rethink that, for a, a relatively uh, minor investment, it's, um, it's, uh, it's likely that we would install uh, dual drives so we'll have the opportunity to switch back and forth between electric or gas drives so that we don't have outages at the time of this. Uh, Francois, I believe, mentioned that we have about 240,000 horsepower of electric compression across our system uh, today. We are going to continue to look to, to add it, additional electric where it makes sense. Matter of fact, uh, just a few weeks ago, we spent, uh, approved a capital project of about $100 million to, uh, to expand a project into Virginia where we're going to um, basically replace some older inefficient gas compression with new electric drives, maybe even a dual drive that will help us serve incremental load at the same time driving down our, our greenhouse gas footprint. So uh, with that, I'll pause. I'll just invite others to, to jump in if they want to. Yeah, Stan, this is Bevan. So Linda, with respect to our liquids pipelines, um, certainly uh, first and foremost, I want to acknowledge uh, the teams who um, and our customers who had to work through some fairly horrendous uh, circumstances to get us to a spot where we're very safe and secure with all our assets. Um, we, we needed to, uh, our, within the liquids business unit, while the, de the demand actually uh, cratered in that uh, many of the refineries that uh, we provide deliveries to um, didn't have power, couldn't receive uh, shipments, and so we're in the midst of a number of circumstances where both uh, our delivery points were under force majeure. Um, and as such, even though our assets were very operational um, and functioning well, uh, we had to uh, similarly um, make a force uh, majeure event uh, in that we needed to park securely those volumes that were in our in our pipe. We see that this, uh, this will clear up uh, fairly quickly. We don't see it being material to our overall uh, revenue for the year at all, um, and nor should it impact um, our customers uh, in any material way. That's helpful. Thank you. And I guess just a 10,000-foot view, maybe a follow-up question um, for Francois or the team. Um, considering um, your geography currently, um, you mentioned previously that there is a benefit to diversification. Certainly asset diversification is beneficial. Geographic um, uh, diversification is beneficial. 
Um, do you, how do you see your geographic mix potentially um, shifting over the next decade, uh, given some of the, uh, the you know, political change we're seeing, uh, given uh, some of the uh, policy changes we're seeing? And specifically, I'm wondering if maybe there's a bit more of a tilt to Canada and what uh, might prompt, if at all, any consideration of any investments outside of North America and what would the criteria need to be to, uh, to consider that? Thanks for the question, Linda. You know, it, it, it's interesting. Uh, we do regularly, uh, at least annually, you know, ask ourselves the question, is the opportunity set in our current footprint, Canada, U.S., and Mexico, sufficiently large, and uh, you know, does it intersect with our core competencies well enough that we have an opportunity set that's sizable enough not to um, cause us to want to look further afield geographically? Um, to this point, in the last several years, when we've asked ourselves that question, we've said that we believe there's plenty of opportunity for us in our existing um, uh, uh, footprint, uh, you know, to grow the business in a manner that we want to. You know, our experience has been that, you know, where you have commercial relationships, um, you have, uh, you know, political relationships with, with state governors, uh, or with, uh, with members of parliament or members of provincial parliament, where you have uh, relationships with the regulators, um, with commercial organizations, it's just much easier to manage um, what we, you know, we all know uh, is a, uh, um, an increasingly demanding standard from our stakeholders in how we develop energy infrastructure. So anytime you think about uh, going further afield, um, you're flying a bit blind in terms of um, your ability to assess uh, how well you can manage some of those stakeholders. So uh, for the time being, again, as we look at our opportunities, we are opportunity rich. We are, we are very confident in our ability to originate five to six billion dollars a year of opportunity in North America uh, with the set of core competencies and capabilities uh, where we can manage risk and earn a reasonable return. So. Um, it's uh, not to say that we won't contemplate um, expanding further afield in the future, but those issues, particularly around having key stakeholder relationships in those new geographies, is something that's bearing more and more weight in our assessments. Thank you for the context. I'll jump back in the queue. Our next question comes from Robert Catelier of CIBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hey, good afternoon. You've uh, basically touched on most of my questions at this point, but on the capital allocation, um, how are you adapting the investment process to account for the uncertainty uh, related both to the energy transition and also the pandemic, which, you know, both those seem to have an uncertain um, impact, especially in terms of uh, timing. So maybe you can address that. Uh, you've already addressed it really from the hurdles uh, returns point of view, but maybe you can address it from the uh, risk transfer point of view. Maybe I'll get started and I'll ask Don to supplement or, or correct me where I stray. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I guess a couple of things come to mind, uh, Robert. The first is we do scenario analysis. You know, we run our models to, um, uh, you know, end of life uh, for uh, you know all of our 
capital investment opportunities. And we do look at various scenarios for how energy transition might occur, um, what the impact might be on supply and demand and prices for all, the, all of the different forms of commodities, uh, whether it's the underlying commodity for that particular investment opportunity or competing commodities that might affect our ability to recontract and, and manage some of the residual risk. So running all of our investment opportunities through those scenarios does allow us to assess the resiliency of, um, of uh, when we make investments. Uh, I'll point out that with most of our capital being allocated into our regulated businesses, particularly on the gas side in Canada and the U.S., you know, the, the regulated construct does allow us to earn a return on and of capital uh, for when we make those, those investments. And so to the extent, um, you know, the useful life of a basin were to uh, shorten, uh, you know, uh, inside of uh, the remaining um, years of depreciation, we'd have the ability to, to apply to the regulator to accelerate depreciation and recover our capital. Uh, we don't, we don't uh, foresee that happening anytime in the near future, but just to point out that there is that regulatory mechanism there that's a, that's a mitigant. The other is uh, with respect to uh, carbon emissions and how do we factor in what I call carbon competitiveness into our capital allocation model. And uh, it's a bit more uh, uh, straightforward to do, uh, for example, in Canada where the federal government has proposed a mechanism and an escalation for, uh, for carbon taxes going forward. We can uh, ascribe economic value to those emissions uh, either with respect to the emissions of uh, the actual opportunity or to create other opportunities to actually reduce our emissions and what the economic return will be for those. I would say it's early days for us on how to apply the concept of carbon competitiveness in our capital allocation, but uh, it is something that we are beginning to more formally incorporate into our, into our capital allocation going forward. It's Don here. I'll just uh, maybe speak to um, COVID um, and, and really, it's any other you know event risk that uh, that might might be visited upon us uh, either through permitting or execution on any large project. We're, uh, we do restrict the amount of capital we expose at the early stages of any project, and we uh, we look to towards mindful risk sharing with other stakeholders. Uh, to box in risks that we don't necessarily have the ability to control, or uh, or of a magnitude potentially that that you know is, is overly impactful to us. So um, that's really the way you've seen us change our approach here. Is as particularly in the large scale projects uh, on on the KXL, the coastal gas links, um, and the like. Is um, so it's not COVID specific. It is just any event that we, we can't foresee or control, um, just try to limit how much capital we, we have exposed or how much of a grind it could be to our returns. Yeah, thank you. That, that's the answer I was looking for. Thanks. Our next question comes from Michael Lapidus of Goldman Sachs. Please go ahead. Hi, guys. Thank you for taking my question and, and, and appreciate you taking the amount of time on, the, on this fourth quarter call. Um, I actually have two. One is Coastal Gas Link. Um, can you remind us, what is the lag in cash flow? So, like, if the CapEx is going to go up on Coastal Gas Link, 
do the tolls go up each year reflective of, of what the capex level? So if capex in a given year and the forecast is up 500 mil or a bill, will the toll in that year go up as well to reflect that change in that year's capex? Or is there a lag in cash flow? And, and so it has an impact on kind of credit metrics, FFO to debt, et cetera. Maybe I'll start with that one, uh, Michael, and then Don may have some comments on it as well. So, of course, you know, we um, as we spend on coastal gas link, if capex goes up, and in all cases we attempt to mitigate any impact on on capex as as we encounter issues, uh, you know, that capital flows into tolls at in service, uh, and all of the capex flows into tolls at the same time. So the toll recovery begins as soon as. Uh, we are at in service, uh, it, so. Uh, but we do, from the perspective of of operating cash, we do achieve AFUDC on this uh, as we progress, and we have cash AFUDC uh, from the joint venture partners as as we go. I, I hope that answers the question. Don may have some comments uh, to add to that. Sure. Um, so the way Coastal Gas Link is structured, uh, it is an equity investment from our perspective uh, and on our, on our financial statements. Um, there is significant project financing in place at the project level um, that will be shaped to the ultimate size of the project. So there's significant leverage there uh, that does not hit our balance sheet. Um, it's supplement, uh, supplemented by, as Tracy mentioned, cash carry costs from the shippers over the course of the project and equity contributions from ourselves plus uh, KKR and ANCO, our partners, and uh, uh, hopefully ultimately First Nations. Um, so the, the, uh, the impact on TC Energy uh, is, uh, of the cost increase there is relatively insignificant uh, on our balance sheet and on our credit metrics. Uh, as we noted in our disclosure, we don't expect the cost increase or the scheduled delay uh, to have any significant impact on the equity contributions we ultimately make to the project. So uh, meaningful at the project level, but uh, in terms of the consolidated impact on the company, um, we don't see it as being material. Got it. And then one just kind of coming back to capital allocation a little bit. If CapEx stays in the $4.5 to $5 billion a year range, FFO to debt will continue to improve over time, even if dividend growth is up 6% or so. Um, in, year two, in year three and year four, that implies you're, you're kind of naturally deleveraging. Um, so unless there's some other headwind or some other use of cash on the cash flow statement, do you think you're positioning yourself where if there's not incremental growth projects like the hydro project or something else, where that by year three or year four, you're likely buying back stock? Um, it's Don here again. I'm, I'm not sure if we're buying back stock, but we do have, we do have financial capacity that grows over time. Um, so it's, it's beyond just the cash, um, the, the 40% or 60% of cash flow that we come in here tend to reinvest each year. Your debt capacity, as you pointed out, within your credit metrics of, of debt EBITDA and the high fours and FFO in the 15% area, uh, does give you the ability to to grow that that investment base without um, without tripping any of your credit metrics over time, whether it's share buyback or 
additional investment in, in similar kind of uh, initiatives that we have going forward remains to be seen. Got it. Thank you, Don. Much appreciated. Our next question comes from Patrick Kenny of National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Yeah, good morning, everybody. Um, I know you're looking to establish your uh, emission reduction targets at some point this year. I was just curious how far away you still might be from setting those targets and maybe some initial thoughts around pledging net zero or setting absolute versus intensity targets by, say, 2030. And I guess just how you're thinking internally about aligning those emission targets with broader government policies out there and and your overall 5 to 7% growth objectives. Patrick, it's Francois. Thanks for the question. Uh, you know, we did mention at our investor day that uh, our intention, uh, well, first of all, uh, we did establish um, some policy initiatives in our sustainability and climate change report here in 2020, uh, you know, indicating uh, that we believe we do have a responsibility as a, you know, a responsible um, owner and operator of infrastructure to reduce our emissions to um, every extent possible. We, as a company, decided to take the additional time to come back with a more granular answer, not only with respect to what um, you know interim targets might be, and ultimately what our, our 2050 type uh, uh, timeframe targets would be, but also the strategies that we would be employing to get there. We think it's important to uh, you know have a credible credible plan. One that not only we can communicate to you all and others in the financial community, but our other stakeholders, indigenous communities, governments, policymakers, et cetera. So uh, I would say, um, you know, uh, you can expect us to be providing some clarity on that in the second half of the year. Our sustainability climate change report uh, was published in October in 2020. Um, we might uh, be ready to uh, publish, um, you know, our conclusions and our findings a bit earlier than that, but it would be no later than, than that type of time frame. We think it's an important document uh, to get out, uh, you know, to our, our stakeholders as, as early as possible. Um, given our, our culture and our propensity to be disciplined and uh, under-promise and over-deliver, I, I won't provide any hints as to where we think we might land. The good news is that from our perspective, uh, the technology exists today in order for us to uh, make significant reductions in our emissions, because the you know a good a good percentage I would say the you know, vast majority of our emissions come from burning gas uh, at our compressor stations um, on our pipeline systems, and simply by replacing those with electric motors, you reduce your scope one emissions um, immediately. Scope 2 emissions matter, of course, and so if you're replacing a gas turbine at a compressor station with um, uh, electricity generated from gas fire generation, like for example, it would, would currently be the case in Alberta, doesn't make a whole lot of sense to do that. So, um, you know, we think it's going to take some time for us to uh, achieve those targets based on, particularly around Scope 2 emissions, how the underlying generation mix evolves over time. Uh, also, uh, as uh, I think uh, Linda alluded uh, in an, an earlier question, you have to consider reliability um, and, uh, you know, 
uh, a lot of our compressor stations are in very remote areas where there are no uh, transmission lines. And so from a reliability and a safety and a redundancy standpoint, uh, it's not going to be applicable everywhere. But uh, so I think we'll be able to get part of the way there, at least with um, a pretty well-defined set of strategies. The other important thing is how quickly this takes place. Um, we think it's very important to have a vibrant and healthy uh, you know, energy system with all participants in the energy value chain uh, having financial health. And so the natural opportunity for us to rotate capital to lower emitting technologies is when a piece of equipment reaches the end of its useful life. To the extent you're replacing it earlier than that, someone has to absorb that cost and we're very cognizant of not creating significant rate shock for our customers. So we think this is a strategy that's going to be pretty straightforward, but it will take some time to execute if you want to minimize rate shock. And we'll see what policymakers provide in terms of incentives for us to accelerate the rotation of that capital stock. And uh, you know, there's not a ton of clarity from policymakers yet on what those mechanisms might look like, and I think those would uh, affect um, our ability to reduce our emissions more quickly than would otherwise be the case through natural attrition. That's great. Appreciate the comments there, Francois. And, and also just, you know, with respect to balancing the strategic plan um, to achieve your ESG goals, with your financial growth goals as well. Just looking at your power portfolio, you know, clearly it's been a strong first couple months of the year for the Alberta power market. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure the main focus right now is, is beefing up your renewables footprint. So just wanted to get your thoughts on how you view the relative attractiveness of allocating more capital towards the Alberta market to capture more of, a, of an immediate impact financially versus building out some of your larger scale contracted renewables over time, which again might um, might fit well with achieving your ESG goals. Yeah, perhaps I'll, I'll get started and I'll ask Corey to uh, provide further comment. Uh, just at a high level, you know, our strategy uh, in our power business is we want to uh, invest in more uh, fuel diversification. So uh, we like our cogen business in Alberta. Uh, it's been doing well and operating extremely well under severe cold temperatures over the last uh, few weeks. Uh, so we've been very pleased with the operating uh, and financial performance of those. We do uh, want to have more of a balance in terms of fuel diversity. Again, you know, our our goal is to is to be prosperous as a company, irrespective of the pace and direction of energy transition over time. So that speaks to having more diversity in our fuel mix. Um, but having said that, um, you know, perhaps I'll ask Corey to uh, add some commentary on how he's thinking about the Alberta marketplace. Hi, thank you, uh, Francois. You know, I think that, uh, you know, we, we would approach uh, the Alberta marketplace and the entire power platform the way we approach the rest of our business. We are looking for long-term contracted relationships that meet our hurdle rates for uh, for our power assets. And uh, I think we will want to stick to our knitting and really stay focused on that being our core business. I think we want to avoid merchant exposure um, and avoid adding that uh, to, to our portfolio. And, and I think, as Francois said, 
and his comment, firming assets such as pumped hydro, long-term contracted assets such as renewables, both in the province and in the lower 48, uh, provide opportunities as well as serving our existing load. Okay, that's great. Thank you very much. Our next question comes from Andrew Kuski of Credit Suisse. Please go ahead. Thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, probably a question for Devin to start, and it's really just on some of the legacy asset positioning you have at Hardesty around uh, base Keystone and then what you have already built uh, for really for what was the KXL project and really in relation to pipeline connectivity and then the terminal positioning you have in Hardesty. Uh, thanks, Andrew. Um, certainly, you know, Hardesty is the origination point for the Keystone system, um, and it is, is it is strategically connected, and the interconnects uh, that are with other parties' terminaling assets uh, become more strategic with with how you how you manage those assets. So, we've been generating a, a longer-term plan for those assets um, that originally was based primarily off of uh, the Keystone Excel project, but there still is very strategic use uh, for our investments in Hardesty. And, and you know, an extension to that uh, is that, you know, the assets that have already been uh, constructed or put in service, we were, uh, our project teams are actively looking for ways to utilize that equipment. Um, it is strategically positioned again, and that's in in our in our core corridor. And as such, we would look to find ways to recover value on those assets. I think that's very helpful. And then maybe also just a reference to another legacy business being in the power business, where you've been for many years, uh, especially with renewables exposure and then waste heat. Uh, probably twenty some odd years ago, you started there. Could you give us just some color and context, and there's probably a question more for Francois, just on the your internal capabilities for scaling the renewables business or just associated power efforts with your in-corridor assets if you chose to go that route? Yep, excellent question. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'll, uh, uh, I'll point out that at, at various points in time over the last 20 years, um, well, uh, we either currently or have operated nuclear, uh, wind, solar, natural gas. We dispatched coal, uh, some geothermal uh, as well, I believe, uh, run of river hydro. So, uh, and, you know, uh, for the most part, those people are still strewn uh, about our organization. Um, one of the reasons for bringing uh, Corey on board um, with 20 years plus of experience in the uh, electric utility sector and uh, you know developing a generation business for a couple of our competitors over those two decades um, was to reconsolidate um, and uh, reform uh, our team uh, and uh, you know build back our origination capabilities around those types of opportunities. So we can prosecute what we see as the opportunity set going forward. And Corey, uh, I'll invite you to add any comment you want to uh, make there. Yeah, thank you very much. I think that's a, a, an excellent point. I think we are, as, as Francois said, we are, have been, we are opportunity rich with, uh, with uh, choices for 
investing and we are equally as opportunity rich with our uh, personnel and our team members that have a long history in this sector. So we have a high level of confidence that we can execute uh, systematically and effectively and within our risk profile uh, for this sector. And uh, I think as you would uh, have heard from many folks on this call, we are very focused on uh, staying in corridor with what we do best. And so we'll manage uh, those projects uh, safely and effectively and, and, uh, and really use the expertise that we've gained over the last 20 plus years in, in this sector. That's great, thank you. Our next question comes from Praneet Satish of Wells Fargo. Please go ahead. Thanks. I have uh, two quick questions. Um, first, on, on KXL, if you decide not to proceed with the project, um, can the steel that was ordered be reused for future projects or sold? And, and if so, is there any way to quantify um, those savings? Evan, do you want to grab that one? Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I had myself on mute. <laughs> um, uh, certainly, uh, our project team, Pranith, is evaluating what we can do with all of our equipment um, and its uses. Uh, you know, the value of steel um, in some cases has increased, and, and certainly there's a market uh, for some of our spare materials if that if if we evolve to that point here. So, our our team is looking at the the best strategy to wind down and work closely with our partners um, to do so, um, and we'll we'll provide further updates, uh, you know, once once those plans are in place. They got it. And then um, it, it looks like you're you're still in settlement negotiations on on Columbia Gas, but but the rates became effective on on February 1st. So I'm just wondering how this will be accounted for. I guess specifically, will your uh, EBITDA and Q1 reflect the higher proposed rate on Columbia Gas? So, pretty this is Dan. I could start, and Don, you could supplement as necessary. Um, but yes, so we did put the uh, motion rates into effect on February 1, and we will continue to collect those until a settlement is finalized. At that point in time, we'll basically go back and, and, and restate um, our revenues back to February 1st. So you can kind of think of each month, we'll be uh, we'll be reserving the difference between uh, what our filed rates are and what our expected or final settlement rate is, and um, hope to have more clarity on, on the whole rate case process for you in, in the May conversation. But I would just say at this point in time that uh, things are progressing uh, as expected. We've had two settlement conferences so far, uh, a third one scheduled for for next week, and uh, again, just going to ask for your uh, your patience uh, in letting the process play out a little further. Yeah, it's Don here. There, yeah, the 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 progress on the the, the process uh, will inform us as to what kind of an estimate we make uh, in terms of recognition uh, in the quarter. Uh, it'll all get smoothed out over time as um, as a settlement is either reached or we end up going through litigation and and get the outcome of that. But it, it'll be a point in time estimate. Got it. Thank you. Our next question comes from Harry Matier of Barclays. Please go ahead. Hi, good afternoon. Um, two for me. The first, just on um, hybrid securities. So I, I appreciate the comment earlier that with KXL out of the budget, you know, no longer an intention to issue those uh, for funding. I guess I, I'm just wondering if we can um, expand that. Um, 
you and your team contend with your leverage metric trajectories, is, is the plan for any debt financing really just to be straight senior unsecured, or you know, might hybrid still play a role uh, in sort of your base case the next couple of years? Yeah, it's on here. We, um, we have a limitation of 15% of our capital structure being in preferred shares and hybrid securities. Uh, we're, we're bumping up against that right now. Um, so in the absence of balance sheet growth, um, uh, I wouldn't expect any, any change upward in that. Um, so that, what, what you see on the slide in terms of debt financing is, is generally um, senior debt. Okay. Um, and then, you know, second question, more just financial policy, but away from hitting a specific credit ratings target, have you spent any time thinking about whether just with the energy transition, which, you know, I think carries some inherent uncertainty, does that alone warrant bringing leverage down further than your current target just to naturally embed um, some added cushion for the company? Uh, we're, we're in continuous dialogue with the rating agencies uh, to get, get a sense of where their heads are at. Um, we're pretty satisfied with the strength of the portfolio right now. As you look at the left-hand side of the balance sheet, it's really never been stronger. It's long-term annuity streams, uh, crown jewel assets and portfolios. So um, from our perspective, it's very utility-like in that sense. Um, if the rating agencies start attributing more risk to, to that portfolio, as Francois mentioned earlier, we have mechanisms such as accelerating depreciation to address that. So um, because there is uncertainty out there, it doesn't, um, uh, at, at this point, doesn't make us move to reduce leverage. Uh, we're quite comfortable with, with uh, where our metrics are at and, uh, and just the stability of our cash flow here. Um, so if, if the goalposts do start changing, we'll, we'll have to... Um, you know, we'll have to assess that and, and, and see where to from there. But at this point, we're, we're quite comfortable, uh, and the rating agencies agency seem quite comfortable as well uh, with the business risk and how it's funded and how it's financed. Okay. Thank you for that. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes the question and answer session. If there are any further questions, please contact TC Energy Investor Relations. I will now turn the call over to Mr. Moneta. Please go ahead. Uh, thank you, and thanks to all of you for participating today. Uh, we very much appreciate your ongoing interest in TC Energy, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. In the meantime, we wish you and your families good health. Thank you, and goodbye. Thank, thank you. This concludes today's conference call. You may disconnect your lines. Thank you for participating, and have a pleasant day. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.